This is episode 20, centered around cryptography. We've talked a lot about cryptography over the past, and we've made a couple attempts at recording this show. The delays are all my fault in actually producing this, so please go to the in-security.org website and follow along with the show notes. The topic can get somewhat complicated. You can also use the website to leave comments on the posts or see past episodes there as well and subscribe to the podcast through that means. You can follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show and send your email to feedback at in-security.org. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm tired. Are you? I'm tired. You too? Yeah. What, uh, yeah, what'd you, what'd you get up to this weekend? Uh, this weekend I went, uh, to this fun family place where it's like, um, hotel that you stay at and there's a water park there. I don't know if you have it out West, but it's called uh, great wolf lodge. I have no idea. Yeah. It's mostly uh, a kid themed hotel where there's like animals everywhere and mascots and indoor water park. So it's lots of fun. A water park themed mascot themed water park. Well, okay, fine. I don't express myself clearly. I'm pretty sure that you did. I think I'm just being a jerk. So this weekend I went, I had a hockey filled weekend. Did you? There's lots of hockey games. A hockey and family fun filled weekend. Cool. Um, Stuart was in town and he always gets really excited. So we went out together on Friday and then Saturday night we got together as a, as a family, as a hockey family and watched the Habs game. And then Sunday we went to the winter classic. You went there. Yeah, we were actually, we had tickets. So we went to the Vancouver Canucks versus the Ottawa senators and, uh, Tegan and Sarah played. Oh, very cool. I like them. Uh, musicians of a Canadian nature, I believe. Yes, of a West Coast Canadian nature. Mm. Anyway, it was very exciting uh, and very fun-filled afternoon and weekend. Well, that sounds like a great way to spend the weekend. Yeah. I mean, it's no animal park-themed park, water park. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea if we actually had an idea for this week. We do. I do. Do you want to hear what it is? What is it? I do. I do. Uh, So remember a lot of times we're talking about how, uh, like, especially with the networking ones, you want to encrypt stuff. And we just kind of danced around the topic of encryption a whole lot. Yes. Well, I was thinking maybe it's time we talk about encryption. I think encryption is an excellent idea for a topic this week. So uh, before we get into that, there's probably some definitions we need to say because uh, cryptology is really like a scientific study of things. There's terms that they use that they want to be maintained and not misused. So let's just go over some of those. First one is confidentiality. And in the terms of cryptology, it is the ability to keep some information private, even if you're communicating publicly. Uh, There's another concept called non-repudiation, and that is that the person who sent the message was indeed the only person who had the ability to send the message, that no one had changed the message in between. And so this is like, uh, you know, you can't say, no, I didn't write that check to you to get my basement well fixed because uh it wasn't me and then they go but this is your signature on it and this is your handwriting on it so that's non-repudiation right this is a time-stamped video of you writing it (laughs) exactly Uh, there's the term cipher which is synonymous with algorithm it's the actual math that makes encryption and hashing work Um, there's the terms plain text which is just what it sounds like. It's it's the text that you write down or the information. It doesn't have to be text. It could be an image or whatnot before it's encrypted or hashed. And then there's the cipher text, which is after that's been encrypted or hashed. So the, the resultant and the virgin, if you would. Do you have a definition for hashed? 
Yeah, I'll get to it. There's cryptanalysis, which is actually the study of breaking and cracking cryptography. There's also keys, which are like passwords for cryptography, right? There's everybody can use the same algorithms to encrypt something, but it's the key that's got to be different so that people don't know what's being written to be able to go back the other way to be able to decrypt it. So encrypting is taking a message and making it go through an algorithm. And then the output of that is ciphertext. And decrypting is the act of taking that ciphertext, going through an algorithm to decrypt it. And then you have the the plain text. And the key is effectively the decoder ring that you use. Absolutely. And then there's the one-way hash, which is a mathematical algorithm so that you can take whatever text and run it through this algorithm, which then makes a smaller piece of, of ciphertext that can never be reversed. At least that's the objective. And the objective is also that it ends up being significantly unique so that you can't have two things ending up being the, the same ciphertext. So a lot of times we use these things for storing passwords. So when somebody enters in their password, it actually breaks it down into a hash. And then you compare hashes and make sure that this is the, the correct input. I think we talked briefly on that before. Cool. Absolutely. I think we did talk about it before. I just figured while we were redefining all of these things, it would be good for any of the listeners to have that readily available. Yes. And so those are just the general terms so that we can all be speaking the same language as we go through this. So probably one of the easiest ways to to think about encryption um, is things like the, uh, you, know, you ever seen those puzzles in the newspaper? I don't know if they have them anymore, but they're called cryptograms. And it was like, like a decoder ring type thing where every letter is substituted for another letter. And it looks like gibberish when you just see it on paper. You try to use your cryptanalysis to figure out what the originating text, the plain text was before it got enciphered, right? So you, you find like a smaller word type thing and you'll figure out, okay, well, that X is a replacement for A or maybe an I because those are the two ones in the English language that are easy like that. And then you start going through and you transpose every X you see with a with an A or an I and you get to the next ones and you solve the puzzle that way, right? It's a really fun puzzle, but it's a really basic form of encryption called substitution. So it's a substitution algorithm where you replace one letter with another. There's also another very common one where you rotate the letter by a certain number of other letters. So say you rotate every letter four down. So an A becomes a D, a B becomes an E, etc. right? And so you can write this down. And this is called a Caesar cipher, where you actually just shift them over. And it was fine back in the day when, you know, not many people could read, but it doesn't actually provide that much value. It's not, it's not very difficult to do the cryptanalysis. You just subtract three from everyone or until it makes sense. And anything more complicated than this, we're going to need to revisit the XOR concept that we had talked about back in episode two, where it's a decision where you have to see if things are true or false based on the state of the input and something else you're comparing it to. So when we're talking about light switches, remember, it was like off or on. If you had two light switches, if one was on and the other one was off, then the actual light was on. And if you had them both be on the up position, the on position, then the light was actually off. Have both off, they're obviously off. You have to have only one be on, otherwise the result is off. And they use this throughout the algorithms to do the mathematical functions. So for example, if we wanted to encrypt the name Bob in lowercase... And you break it down, every letter into the bit value for it. So each character is 8 bits. So B is 0, 1, 1, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0. And then O is 0, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1, 1, 1. And the last B is the same thing, 0, 1, 1, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0. So say we have a three-character key, right? So a three-byte key. 
to go along with that. And just for demonstration purposes, let's say that the first byte is one 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 one. The second one is zero 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 zero. And then the last one is one zero one zero one zero one zero one zero. So when we XOR that, any time that we came across the the B in the first one as a zero, and because all of the, the rest are one in the, the key that we're using. So it just basically flips everything over. So the first B is one zero zero one 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 zero one, which is the opposite of zero one one zero 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 one zero, because everything's one in in that thing, right? So we're XORing it, we're finding anything that's a one matched with a zero makes a one, anything that's a one matched with a one makes a zero. And because there's no zeros in in this key. For that first letter, there's no there's no possibility of a zero and a zero. So we write that down. We write the cipher text down as we go across it. The next one is XOR to zero one one zero one 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 one. See the show notes. Follow along at home. And then the last one is one one zero zero one zero zero zero, and that's that's what it comes out to. Uh, because we've XORed the key that we have, the three-character key, how convenient that we had with every three characters from Bob. Do the characters, the first B and the last B, end up being the same? No, they end up being different because the key for the B is different. Right, The first B has got a different key associated with it, all ones, versus the last B, which has one zero one zero one zero one zero as the key. So because our simple algorithm in this case is just an XOR for demonstration purposes, you can see that it results in a different cipher text for the letters. It's impossible, quote unquote, to guess what the actual plain text was without knowing this XOR algorithm and the key. So if you want to find out what the plain text is, you actually just put that cipher text through XOR because it's a simple XOR using the shared secret key that we've exchanged beforehand, perhaps, for these three letters. And you'll find out that the answer goes back to being Bob. Hmm. That's a neat property of uh, XORing. That is. So it's pretty inefficient to do that, and it's pretty unrealistic that we'll have a defined key for you know that, that number of letters that we have. Essentially, you would have to send a key that's the exact same length as the message that you're trying to send. Exactly. So when you do a single bit or a byte at the time like that, it's what you call a stream cipher. And, you know, where we had talked about having this manual key just so we can demonstrate how XORing works, a stream cipher actually automatically generates this key stream, so the stream of keys automatically, and it's able to send it along on the fly. And for us, we couldn't possibly demonstrate with something like that. But the computers do this so fast that it just makes sense for using it where you can have dropouts in the encryption. So it's great for things like UDP protocols that we were talking about way back in episode five. So it's great for streaming video and audio where you can have these dropouts and it doesn't matter. Quality might go down a little bit, but then it'll just reassemble itself. Hmm. Uh, The next level of complexity is actually doing something called a block cipher. So a block cipher is kind of like what it sounds like. You take a block of text. So if you had like a novel, then you take the first, say, 64 characters of that novel, not characters like people in the book, but I mean like actual like written typed characters, right? So including the spaces, including the periods, including all of that. And then you'd put it through a block cipher, which is the algorithm that says, I'm going to use this key that happens to be 64 bytes long and repeatedly use this key. So every time I read 64 characters, I XOR it through this key, write down that cipher text, I move on to the next 64 characters, I do that over and over and over again using the same key, right? That's got a pretty big weakness in it in that the English language is actually constructed in a very easy-to-predict way. There's a frequency in which letters repeat. Uh, there's a common way of doing the sentences. Uh, 
if you have a large enough block of text, maybe from something that's common enough that that you see it everywhere, then you can perhaps figure out what the original plain text is by reverse engineering it using your cryptanalysis and then derive what the key is. The likelihood of that being decrypted ends up increasing the longer the sample of text is. Right. And the more rigorously people follow the protocols of communication. So if we had a back and forth communication, typically someone would say something like hello, right? But that's not 64 characters long. So the way that the block ciphers work is if if you don't have the full size, then you pad that. So you add like spaces for the rest of it, say, right? And then you still go through the XOR function. But someone who's familiar with common protocol of speaking knows pretty much that the first one's going to be hello. So then you take that and you figure out through the XOR what that key is that changed it. And I mean, it might not just be a simple XOR that happens, but for this example, it is. And I think actually for the electronic code book, uh, which is a, a block cipher that's a very early block cipher, that it was just XOR together. But anyways, you can, you can figure out what the key is. And then all future communications, you can also figure out what the next key is. And just the more complex algorithms that have been developed over the years have increased the complexity to this. But the same basically holds true. But say that you missed that first little bit. I mean, there's still through this code block, the ability to figure out through common word streams that go along together. You could still apply statistical analysis. And um, if you're smart and are a good cryptanalysis, you can actually derive what that block cipher key is. And then any time that you've captured anything, you just apply that same block key to decrypt the, the message. So it doesn't matter. It's just it's reuse and reuse is pretty bad for encryption. Like, I mean, it almost becomes a security through obscurity practice, which anybody in security will tell you just it just doesn't work. Right. You can't just have one secret key. It's like having a pa- the same password for everything. If you foul up once and write it down somewhere, then all of your accounts are compromised, potentially. Same thing's true with encryption, with this uh, electronic codebook type of encryption. Speaking of simple ciphers and regular language, there is the story of the Rosetta Stone. Essentially, linguists and historians were always having trouble trying to decipher Egyptian until they actually found this Rosetta Stone. And the Rosetta Stone had a breakdown of essentially the same decree by Ptolemy in three different languages, in um, Egyptian, in Greek, and I think in an advanced Greek. And using this stone that they had discovered, they were then able to decipher a bunch of the regular Egyptian hieroglyphs and how they were used. And then using that information that they then garnered, they created a key And they then went on to use that key to decipher all the various hieroglyphics that they had found up to that point. That's right. It it taught them a lot about the language structure itself. People weren't sure if uh, an image was a part of a word or a, a whole word or what kind of structure was behind it. And once they had discovered the Rosetta Stone and were able to see the same thing written in a couple different languages... That really unlocked the whole uh, language system that the Egyptians had used. So that's a fantastic example. People have developed an idea that says, okay, we don't want to communicate a one-time pad being like we were talking about before, where every character had a different key associated with it. That's not realistic to communicate that, especially in the older days. So they said, What we're going to do is we're going to use what we do for that ECB and we're going to actually only do that the first time. So we're going to use the key for that block of text the first time. And then every future communication that we're going to do, we're going to use the output cipher text and we're going to use that as the key for the next one. So this is called cipher block chaining. So again, it's I have a key set aside for this plain text that we've communicated. We've communicated this key across secretly, maybe through another channel. Maybe I've called you up and said, okay, this is what we're going to use for that first key. So you go, okay, you've written that down. And I say, okay, now I'm going to email you through the wide open internet, you know, a message using the cipher blockchaining. So we've agreed on the algorithm that we're going to do. We've agreed on the key to start up this first block. And then that plain text comes in. 
I say that hello first line gets padded, goes through, it gets turned into the ciphertext using that initial key. And then that ciphertext, I go, hello, this is Max talking. So that next little bit goes through the plain text of this is Max talking, gets XORed against the output of the ciphertext from the hello. Right? And then as I keep talking, it always takes that that previous block as the key. Am I making sense here? Yeah, it's essentially a learning algorithm. Yeah, I mean, the, the key keeps getting derived from the previous ciphertext. It is the previous ciphertext, right? So if you eavesdrop in the middle of the conversation, even if you capture a bunch of information, it keeps changing all the time. So it's like nearly impossible, if not impossible, to actually decipher this. With something like that, does it really matter how long the previous segment is? No. So because it's a block, it's always taking, say, 64 bytes into this, right? And I'll pad it if there's not enough. So it'll take 64 bytes and and 60, next 64 bytes and the next 64 bytes as it goes along. So the previous one, ECB, it always ran it against the same key. Every 64 bytes is the same key. If you captured a packet in the middle, if you captured that uh, ciphertext in the middle, and you could use cryptanalysis to decipher what the plain text was for that middle part, then you could use that same key to decipher everything that was sent. In this one, cipher blockchaining, if you capture the part in the middle, the key doesn't make any sense because it's not repeatable because you don't know what came previously. And you need what came previously to be able to determine what the next one is, to make sense of, of that ciphertext to plain text. Right. Because otherwise it's just a randomness, right? Sure, sure you can run it through, but it will never equate to the plain text. Right. DES, the data encryption standard and its follow-up protocol, the triple DES, are the common types of block ciphers that you see everywhere. They're also seen within the Unix-based systems to actually store passwords in them, which is frightfully inadequate. By all means, though... AES is the king of both block mode and stream mode ciphers. It actually can do both. So you'll commonly see people say, when you ask them how how it's encrypted, they go, oh, it's AES. And they think that that's equivalent to like really secure. And it might be, or it might not be. Based on? Based on the implementation. Right. As I was laid out this weekend because I was tired from watching the hockey game, I was just watching a couple of different movies and I ended up watching uh, David Fincher's Zodiac, which actually was a story of the the Zodiac killer. Oh, I wanted to see that. Um, Apparently it's on Netflix, who had taunted the police by sending in a cipher that he had created. And that included, he, he claimed that he would give them his name in the cipher. Right. And they show... I believe, a recreation of the exact cipher that he had sent out. And it is decrypted during the film, and they end up getting the key for his future ciphers, which he sent a few of. Right. Yeah, that that's uh, cryptanalysis fun. The one-way hashes that we talked about at the beginning are algorithms that don't actually use keys. They rely on the same algorithm to produce a fixed-length value that's used mostly to prove integrity of something. So to make sure that the file downloaded was the file that was originally intended to be downloaded, that it wasn't modified on the way, they'll prove it's the same file by you being able to do a calculation on that file on your side and compare the hashes. And when I say fixed length, that means that whatever input gets into it, whether it's cat or big long message to you wishing you the best of luck in all your future endeavors... That all gets calculated down through this algorithm and spits out this value. And it's one way because you can't decrypt it as well. MD5 is a commonly used one that actually makes this digest or, or ciphertext uh, that is 128 bits every time. Right, SHA-1 is always 160 bits long. So that key that you gets generated out of it that you compare the values of, it's always 160 bits. SHA-2 is actually has a bunch of different variants, like six different variants. 
And the name of every different instance of it actually tells you how long the digest is. So you have SHA-224, SHA-256, SHA-512, etc., right? It's all still in the SHA-2 suite. The result of a hash is always the same, right? If you have the same input, it goes through this algorithm. Because there's no key making it random, you always have the same output, right? And hash collisions are really, really bad, they demonstrate a weakness in it. So if you have two different inputs yielding the same hash, now you can modify and find weaknesses within that algorithm that demonstrate that, you know, you can play with it and add white spaces or whatever so that your bad message checks out as if it was the good message. Hmm. And does that regularly happen with some of the ones that you've been mentioning? Actually, yeah. So MD4 which is the predecessor of MD5, was horribly, horribly broken, right? And it was very easy to get hash collisions. And then over the time, they discovered that MD5 had a weakness where it was possible to have hash collisions. And then over time, people had refined that to make it a scientific proof of how to generate these. And now it's really easy to create an MD5 hash collision. And so for all intents and purposes, now MD5 is horribly broken, So you shouldn't really trust it, but it's still used like everywhere on the internet, which hopefully people listening to this will decide to use something stronger like SHA-1 or SHA-2. Now SHA-1 is actually seeing signs of possible collisions. And at the recent RSA conference, even one of the top engineers was saying to not use SHA-1 anymore because of the known weaknesses. But as fast as technology moves is not as fast as cryptanalysis moves which is the reversing of cryptography. So part of the problem of having a collision just to, I assume, revisit it. But essentially, if you've got an algorithm, people have already got a way to generate not your password necessarily, but something close enough that it will create the exact same hash. Right. When the system goes to validate that hash, it'll say, hey, the hash is matched. This must be the right password. So that's the danger. But... If you think about it, if you can take infinite amount of text and it gets crunched down to 160 bits, say, you know, there's bound to be some overlap there. It has to be. Yeah. So it's all around how likely is it for that to occur? So the stronger the algorithm, the more like a character off will create a vastly different hash. So that's about all I have for hashes. MD5's broken, don't use it. SHA-1's showing signs of being broken. Avoid it if you have the ability to use SHA-2. Fair enough. And SHA, I don't know if I mentioned it, stands for Secure Hashing Algorithm. And MD5 is Message Digest 5. I don't know if that's important to anybody. It is to word nerds like me. Word nerd. All right. One thing that that I should note is that when you use a secret key that that's exchanged before it's called symmetric encryption because the same key that's used to encrypt is the same key that's used to decrypt modern cryptography has gone to asymmetric key encryption and it's very cool because it uses a private key and a public key pair to do like all sorts of different things the first most important thing to note though is that it relies heavily on prime numbers to do its magic the next thing is that it uses mathematical trapdoor function. So it's really easy to go through one way, but trying to reverse the encryption is really hard. Like it's it's a factor of a thousand times harder. So Do you have, a, do you have an example of that? Yeah, like a, an example is something just for descriptive purposes, not that this is how things actually work, but so people can follow along at home. You could do something like multiply two prime numbers together, right? And the good thing about prime is that they're only divisible by themselves in one, right? So those are the factors of a a prime number. So the factors of a multiplication of a prime number is it only works with, you know, one, one of the prime numbers or the other prime number that you've multiplied together. So that's why prime numbers are so important, because it's encryption done in this way. The actual algorithms that work for this have this trapdoor function where they drop out uh, a certain answer at an earlier point in time. 
and they make it so that uh, you basically can't reverse it by only knowing half of the crypto keys. For our factoring example, it might take a long time for somebody to go through the math and figure out if it's a prime number or not by you know, saying, hey, is this number divisible by one? Is this number divisible by two? Is this number divisible by three, etc.? right? Especially if the prime number is a very large number. But computers do factoring pretty quickly, right? It's just math, 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 math. But it's still kind of like a brute force against math. Right. So anyways, it's not as simple as that for computers. Um, these complex algorithms with trapdoors involve logarithms and other things that take a long time to compute and other very smart portions of math. Uh, there's a really good example that's used in lots of places, and that is the RSA algorithm. RSA being named after Ron Rivest, Adi Shamir, and Leonard Adelman. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, there's a link to the algorithm in the show notes. So if I want to send you a message and you show me your public key, right? I can encrypt the message using your public key and then you'll be the only one who is able to decrypt it because you hold the private key privately. Right. But the reverse is also true. If I want to make claim that this encrypted message 100% came from me, then what I do is I take the encrypted message and I run it through the encryption algorithm on my system using my private key and attach that to the end of it. And then you have the encrypted message and you say, okay, I have the encrypted message. I want to make sure it's not tampered with. Um, so you can run it through the, the decryption algorithm against my public key. And then you say, okay, based on this public key, I can see that the value of the message is correct and that it decrypts correctly. So therefore, 100% it had to have come from Max, right? And this is what we talked about at the beginning called non-repudiation. Right. So those are some of the benefits of this public-private key pair. You can, you can do that. You can assure the integrity of the message that it wasn't modified by anybody. You can make sure that it didn't come from anybody else because you already have my public key. So yeah, so the, these algorithms are able to provide different contexts of security based on the different inputs and outputs and what key you choose to use of the key pair. The exchange of keys, though, is something that might be problematic, especially you know if you're using the same medium to communicate the key across. If there's someone eavesdropping on that medium, if somebody's sniffing your Ethernet that's going between you and I, then they could capture that key. So we need a method to securely exchange keys. And one thing that people have come up with is the Diffie-Hellman key exchange algorithm. Named after Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman, who are the obvious inventors of this key exchange algorithm. Mr. Hellman was also renowned for trying to keep mayonnaise secure. The earlier iterations of mayonnaise had been much too volatile. <laughs> Before I get into this, something you need to know. Whenever anybody describes parties communicating to each other within cryptography, they always use Alice as one party and Bob as the other party. And then if there's somebody who could listen in on the line, that would be Eve. Okay, for eavesdropper. So it's always Alice and Bob and Eve. So in the Diffie-Hellman key exchange algorithm, we agree publicly of a large prime number and a generator number. Right. And then we come up with our own prime numbers as well, individually. And so the first part is Alice and Bob agree on a value of a large prime number and another number to actually do math on their own. They do math on their own with another random number that they come up with, and then they exchange the results together. And then once they receive the results, they run through another portion of the algorithm, which comes out to a shared secret key that we never actually exchanged, that Alice and Bob never actually exchanged. Through the powers of math, and there's lots of modulus involved, which is always fun. So when we talk about these keys that get developed and whatnot, the 
longer the key length, essentially more secure uh, the algorithm can potentially be because it's harder to guess a larger number. And typically we're talking about prime numbers. The, um, the larger the key space, the less likely people are to have anticipated that prime number, the more prime numbers you can possibly have uh, as you have larger keys. And key length is measured in bits, by the way. So one of the ones that we use for our online shopping and you know secure email and things like that is the secure socket layer protocols or ultimately the tried and true transport layer security vetted to be good enough for public consumption. And they're actually protocols that are split into uh, a couple different sub protocols. They actually use two protocols. They use a handshake protocol that allows the client and server to mutually authenticate to each other to be able to exchange certificates and negotiate the algorithms that are going to be used later on. And then there's the record protocol, which is used to exchange encrypted data. And so when we get into something like SSL or TLS, um, there's basically like a menu that we communicate across and say, okay, these are the offerings that I have. And you check your menu and you say, okay, well, these are the offerings that I have. And we'll determine, okay, this is the most secure offering that we can agree upon. And therefore, we'll communicate over this protocol. So it might be something uh, like an MD5 or a SHA-1 hash to, to determine message integrity. Or, you know, we might agree on something like DES or triple DES or key exchange we also mentioned in previous episodes as a good practice, once that initial handshaking has been completed at that point, because it's so easy to continuously encrypt everything, don't drop people or users out of your encryption. Oh, absolutely. Good point. So it basically uses something like cipher block chaining to keep that ball rolling and to be able to keep that communication going for encryption. But it's that initial part that's very heavy duty, that that's computer resource intensive to be able to, you know, go through these prime numbers and create the method in which we're going to future communicate. So what you need to know about TLS and SSL is really that it uses certificates to create this uh, exchange um, to be able to do public key encryption. So there's some issues Mainly, there isn't a single person who will give you a certificate. So the way SSL works is that, you know, you have the public key, which you put out there publicly. So if anybody wants to talk to you, they have to encrypt using your public key. And then you have the private key, which is able to decrypt the message that comes in. Right? That, along with the negotiated block cipher, allows you to do this communication back and forth. So. The problem comes in, if I get my certificates from VeriSign, I store my private key in secret within my web server or whatever, and then I put out the public key out there on my outside-facing web server, right? That's all good and fine. But if someone goes to GeoTrust, say, to get the certificate, for the same thing uh, and communicates it to somebody else by putting up a fake web server, they're still using SSL to communicate back and forth. Uh, The browser still thinks that they're communicating to the proper person because we have two different certificate authorities signing off that the certificate is valid. So we'd hope that nothing like that ever exists, but in reality, there's nothing stopping it, right? It's just the due diligence done by the certificate authorities that really, you know, can protect us against this. And I guess that's really what we need to be talking about is the fact that as the cryptographers create these fantastic algorithms, they don't just throw it out there as soon as they create it. They don't just create new ones ad hoc, willy-nilly. They actually go through the scientific process of, you know, having peers review it, try to break it, find flaws within it, through the cryptanalysis that they do, 
Um, and for years and years, they'll vet these things and make sure that just like any other scientific theory, this stands up to the test. The Diffie-Hellman exchange is almost as complex as the ad hoc willy-nilly encryption method. Very nice. Very nice. Um, Ba-doom, boom. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It just sounded like one while you were on it. So, I mean, these things are very heavily scientifically vetted. They uh, they want to make sure that there's no problems within the algorithms uh, and that somebody didn't, doesn't discover it afterwards just because of some brain-dead stupid thing. So they make the algorithms uh, open source so that you can see how it actually performs, that at least the good ones do, right? And put it out there to the scientific public to to try to break it, try to find flaws within it, small flaws that can lead to bigger flaws. And it goes through, hopefully, these bodies that coordinate this so that at the end of it, there's a strong algorithm that people can use repeatedly. And even though the algorithm is known publicly, it doesn't actually jeopardize the ability for people to derive what the keys are. Just like you should never put a hard-coded password into uh, an application, you don't put something critical for the result within a crypto algorithm. So once these things are vetted and they're out in the public for use, they're really strong, right? And you need to have basically people mathematically find problems with them. And it might take tens, 20 years to, to find a weakness that you can start chipping away at the algorithm with. And so when we talk about computer security issues with cryptography, it's very rarely about the algorithm itself. It's almost entirely about the implementation of the algorithm. For a very easy example of this, look at the wire equivalent protocol or WEP that's there with Wi-Fi, wireless that's in your laptop perhaps or your house. The wired equivalent protocol is not equivalent to just having a wire, right? It's something that's being broadcast out there and it has significant flaws within the algorithm itself. It wasn't strongly vetted and the problem with the implementations is really around the initialization vector of it. Uh, and the, the algorithms that it relied on belowhand were already known to be broken. Didn't they create WPA to try and address this? Yeah, so WPA uh, is a much more secure implementation than WEP because WEP is so broken. But WPA1 had a small issue with the initialization vector and people found a flaw with the implementation of it that was actually part of the standard for it. So it's not like it's not like you could just fix the flaw in individual systems because everybody else who releases the next version of the product relies on this RFP for how to actually implement it. And it, there's just a flaw within the RFP. Like it's just fundamentally flawed in its initialization vector. So has that Yes, WPA2 is uh, is a fix to the architectural flaw of the implementation of cryptography within the wireless standard. And now it's pretty well good enough. Pretty well good enough. Like there's still flaws and there's still problems with WPA1 can also be found in WPA2. But attacking WPA2 is a lot more difficult based on the strength of the initialization vector and initial streams of communication. So one thing that we do see regularly in encryption and cryptography is a lot of the time, because it is possible to just keep making things more and more obscure and difficult to decipher, more often than not, we reach a point at which researchers decide, okay, this is acceptable for public consumption. We mentioned that already with SSL. We've mentioned that now with this, uh, the WPA2, insofar as these standards are good enough for most public use. And, and like when we were talking about passwords beforehand, and we had stated that it's not about the password never getting cracked. It's about the password being strong enough for long enough that it won't yield control to our systems. The same is true for encryption, is we want to make sure that the information that's transmitted, that's stored locally on our hard drive that gets encrypted or whatnot, 
that it can withstand attack for long enough, meaning like thousands of years, that we're not worried about that information staying confidential between us. We don't, we're not worried about the confidentiality of the message after that much time has elapsed. As far as being able to actually break the ciphers uh, or the encryption keys, there was a, uh, some research done by a doctor. I think it was Gunter Yannick, if I remember correctly. And he had actually developed a box that could automatically decrypt any ciphers. Now, um, this became kind of an issue as the box itself was stolen by Martin Bishop. Are you talking about sneakers? Yes. <laughs> Too many secrets. <laughs> I wanted to see how long I could go on to it before you <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, no, after the first uh, the first name drop there, I was pretty sure you were talking about sneakers. But I waited till the second one to be positive. They got uh, the help of Warner Brandis. Right, right. Whose voice was his passport. Okay. Uh, another flaw that you can find commonly is uh, within like a, an SSL session, if you're protecting your website with an SSL certificate and it's publicly verifiable and you can somehow figure out that that's the only SSL certificate that's going to be created for that name, for that domain name, uh, because the domain is actually part of the certificate that gets presented. Uh, one problem that you can have is in implementation that the web server might allow for a bunch of weaker encryption uh, uses to be used. So so like when I was talking about, there's that menu that gets opened up and said, okay, what can we support? Well, one of the things that might be supported is just plain text, right? We're not even going to encrypt it. We're just going to maybe do a base 24 encoding of it, which is different than encryption. And so if someone gets to be a man in the middle, when you open up your menu and say, okay, these are the things I can handle as a browser, and the other side is supposed to open up their menu and say, okay, well, I'm only going to handle secure communication back and forth. Somebody can get in between that. Just keep going, nope, 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 to that, those menu choices, right? And so at the end of the day, you're just only communicating over uh, an open channel, a plain text channel even though there's that little lock icon up there giving you that false sense of security. That's something penetration testers commonly find. And, uh, and the same thing can be done along the hashing method that's going to be used to validate the integrity of the message back and forth. You know, you can offer up all of these great choices and then at the end of the day, someone just says, no, I, I'm not going to handle any of those stronger ones or even the weaker ones that take time to actually crack. I'm only going to do something that's like full on broken, like RC3. Ooh, RC burn. I don't know. Hopefully that's a good enough introduction to cryptology that uh, people understand you know, how it's used within computing and they can do a ton more research. Obviously, mathematicians make great cryptographers uh, because there's so much heavy math that's done. that's way beyond my capacity to understand. Uh, one thing before we get off this topic, though, is that randomness is very important to be able to protect the information through the cryptographic algorithms that are used. Uh, to begin that initialization vector, to come up with a unique source and pattern for things that's defined in some of the algorithms. And a big problem with that is that computers just don't do random, right? I mean, at their very nature, they're configured to do the exact same thing every time, right? So the algorithms have gotten much, much, much better, but they're still only pseudo-random, not fully random, for the computers that you and I use. There's this concept of quantum cryptography. That's cryptography based around the use of quantum mechanics and being that an atom can be spinning in any direction. If you can find the direction in which that atom is spinning, you then have true randomness. And if you put electricity against it or change anything with that atom, you'll have it spinning in an entirely new direction. It's just part of quantum mechanics um, that I obviously don't know enough about to explain, 
But that, to my knowledge, is the only true randomness that can occur. And that's why the field of quantum cryptography is so very interesting and so very important. They're going to learn all about it and we'll discuss it next week. Hell no. <laughs> um, one interesting thing that's discovered that's very important, that's that's the cat to the mouse or the mouse to the cat. However, I don't know which side is which, probably the cat to the mouse is that uh, quantum computing is the ability to have all of these uh, quantum states for atoms or photons or whatever to be used, is that you can basically cut through most modern day crypto systems by deriving the prime numbers very, very quickly using quantum computers. But quantum computers, I think they're only up to like 16 or 18 qubits now. Right. Where it's like it's a, a qubit's like the same thing as a bit, but in a quantum state. And uh, I mean, it is the future. But as far as, you know, what's actually out there from a quantum computer standpoint, it's all theoretical physics right now. They don't have some practical implementations of it. But the, the theoretical physics show that you can basically quickly use quantum computing to perform cryptanalysis on publicly cryptography and make it transparent. Hmm. Google and the NSA have both bought into something called D-Wave, which is supposedly a quantum computer in a box. But uh, the quantum cryptographers that I've spoken to all think it's hooey because it's just not possible that a quantum computer is out there with, you know, thousands of bits. Well, the whole scientific community is stuck at like 16 or 18 bits. Mm. So they think it's something similar to it, but this thing is like a room sized, like a, like a small, like the room that I'm recording in size uh, computer. But whatever, it helps them do these high frequency prime number factoring type operations. So they're seeing some value in it. Right. And if uh, you don't have any questions on the topic. I feel like we're pretty clear. I feel like that was, uh, well, maybe a little bit impromptu, a little bit in depth and quite, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, we didn't go too deep because obviously math is hard and I can't. But uh, hopefully this allows you to see through the matrix and understand. I think that you're able to unravel quite a few of our questions about cryptography given us a general overview like that so that's another excellent episode in the in the can and i look forward to talking to you again next week to see what we've got in store then and i look forward to it too have a good week matt thanks you too buddy